Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have on the podcast the author of Policy Patrons, Philanthropy, Education Reform, and the Politics of Influence. The book is published this year by Harvard Education Press, and the author is Megan Tompkins Stang. Megan, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's, I'm, I'm so interested to have you on. We've, we've over the last couple of months, had a couple of books that are on similar subject matters, but yours is so novel and, and, and so original that I've been very excited to have you on. Uh, before we talk about the book, why don't you just talk a little bit about yourself? So introduce yourself. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor at the Gerald R. Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. And I did my graduate work at Stanford in the School of Education, um, focusing on organizational sociology and education policy and do work kind of spanning the gamut in education from philanthropy to um, educational management to ethics. So kind of a wide mishmash of things that I'm interested in. Yeah. And you've written this really interesting, very policy and political science relevant book about philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is sort of a, um, uh, an area that, that people may know about, but mainly from a distance, unless they have been getting lots of grants in the past, yes. which everybody <laughs> would hope to, but everybody isn't as, as likely to. Why don't we start on a very basic level? Mm-hmm. Would you give us your definition of what a philanthropic foundation is? So in the book, I focus on private philanthropic foundations, and there's a wide variety of different uh, tax classifications of foundations, but for the purposes of the book and for your audience, private philanthropic foundation is basically a privately held nonprofit corporation and usually uh, populated with money from a benefactor or single family of benefactors and used to influence the public good in some way, contribute charitably to the public good. A 501c3 tax exempt corporation, which means that uh, contributions to the entity are both uh, tax exempt and tax deductible for contributors. 
Okay. Given that, um, your title refers to policy patrons, mm -hmm. which is not what we always associate with philanthropy. Yes. What does it mean to be a policy patron? Well, well, first, it's a decent alliteration for a title. Mm -hmm. But I will say, so one of the things that really distinguishes foundations from other types of uh, 501c3 public charities is that they have a lot of restrictions on their political engagement and advocacy. They're not allowed to lobby at all. They're not allowed to refer to legislation under review, whereas 501c3 public charities can do that. That notwithstanding, from their origins in the earliest uh, of the 20th century, uh, foundations have really tried to influence policy as a major priority. And so over the years, um, foundations have invested in a whole bunch of different uh, political projects ranging from sort of progressive racial equity um, to uh, you know, the Green Revolution um, to things as uh, uh, as contemporary and um, and widespread as promoting breastfeeding. So a wide variety of ways in which they've tried to influence the social order and sort of preferred mechanisms of social change. And so by policy patrons, really kind of talking about how foundations use their financial and political capital to promote certain ideas that are designed to support the public good or whatever their version of the public good is, but also has a bit of a critique in that, you know, what does it really mean to be a patron of policy and can policy be bought in some way by private wealth? Now, um, as you just suggest, there's this historical component uh, to the work that foundations have done and also to your work that's focused specifically on education and schooling. So historically speaking, when did foundations begin to get interested in education? So from the earliest days, you know, the first foundations were um, started around 1908, 1910. Um, and from the earliest days, education has been one of the main priorities. And that even goes back to Reconstruction in the um, post-Civil War South. Like the first sort of public charitable funds were designated to support universal schooling for African-American children um, in the Reconstruction. And sort of continuing from there, education has long been viewed as, you know, a force of equalization and democracy and a way of, you know, supporting human advancement. And so... Ever since the very first foundations, Carnegie, Sage, Rockefeller have existed, they've always had some kind of an education funding portfolio and often have also been involved in influencing policy and education, whether at the local, state or federal level. So I'd say over yeah. 100 years. <laughs> yeah. And but but your focus is uh, focused much more contemporarily. Yes. And you focus on four specific foundations. Mm -hmm. uh, what are those four foundations and, and why choose those four? So, yeah, so I will say the book is different because most of the scholarship on foundations is historical in nature. Um, and so I chose to focus on the Gates Foundation, the Broad Foundation, um, Kellogg Foundation, and the Ford Foundation. And those were chosen partially um, in terms of sort of theoretical motivations and partially convenience. 
I knew I wanted to focus on the largest foundations um, that fund education. Um, and that was motivated by some empirical evidence that large foundations are, you know, in excess of a billion dollar endowments are more likely to try to influence education policy as really a central part of their um, philanthropic strategies. Uh, and it was also the four that I wound up being able to get access to. <laughs> so I originally had a group of about eight to 10 foundations that I was looking to get into. But as I'm sure um, you have seen in the book, getting access to large private foundations is probably one of the more challenging populations <laughs> to solicit interviews from. So, right. yeah, by some um, miracle, I was able to get access into those over time. And so those wound up being a nice cross section of foundations that had different approaches to their grant making, different um, historical tra trajectories and also some differences and even where they were located. So by happenstance, it wound up being a nice um, a nice diversity, I would say, of those large foundations. And would you, would you talk just a little bit more about studying foundations? Um, you, you talk in the book about some of the advice you got before starting your research. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could share a little bit about what some of your advisors told you about the stakes of studying uh, billion-dollar foundations, particularly in a field of education? Yeah. Well, I think, um, well, I should say my advisors were very supportive once I decided on this, but I was, I was cautioned against uh, pursuing this particular topic, especially since I really wanted to talk to folks inside the foundations. And that was because, you know, foundations are notoriously very secretive, closed institutions. You know, they are private organizations um, and traditionally have been um, what one scholar has called they have a culture of reticence, which means like a real distrust of sort of outsiders and of being critiqued, which, again, has historical roots. I mean, foundations have been um, scrutinized in the press and in Congress at various points over the last century for their um, various uh, initiatives and policy influence. So that was one thing that they didn't think I'd be able to get access. And the other was, you know, fear of repercussions for my own scholarly reputation, that if I was going, you know, even to make a moderate critique about these very powerful institutions, that it might put me at risk in terms of being able to secure funding or be, you know, um, supported in my own work. So both of those things, I think, were on their mind. And then, you know, as I say in the book, whether I was totally stupid or just really had a lot of hubris. I was still interested in pursuing this and trying to really understand how these places, which are such sources of power and do have such an influence on the public, how they worked and how they made decisions. Um, but it was yeah. not without trepidation that I did. <laughs> yeah. And, and at least based upon what you write in the book, uh, the foundations, though they were uh, provided anonymity, mm -hmm. were, were quite open with talking about certain aspects of what they did. And as a result, you were able to study this uh, somewhat understudied field of, of public policy and political science. You, you describe in the book that each of the four foundations that you focus on have a different um, approach and strategy uh, that you group as outcome or field oriented. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between an outcome or a field oriented approach for a philanthropic foundation? Yeah, so an outcome oriented foundation, it tends to be really focused on outcomes, on achieving a specific defined impact. They tend to have a very defined strategic plan and vision. They settle on a 
uh, type of impact that they'd like to have. So say, you know, we want to increase achievement of students in X state by X percent in five years. And then they will go about kind of working backwards from there. So they'll find specific organizations, specific grantees who are leaders in this field, give them grants to support their work, and then they'll hold them accountable to uh, usually very uh, carefully defined quantifiable metrics. Whereas the field-oriented foundations tend to go about it almost in the opposite way. So instead of defining a specific outcome more at the foundation level, they give grants, often general operating support grants, as opposed to uh, distinctly tied to a given program. And they will give these to organizations they think are doing good work in a field, and they'll allow those organizations to determine how best to spend the money. And so one, you know, the outcome-oriented one is much more kind of top-down, tends to be a bit more about quality control, um, and then the field-oriented foundations tend to be more sort of from the bottom up, if you will. People use the the terms grassroots versus grass tops. Um, the field-oriented foundations also tended to have a longer time period over which they were willing to fund organizations, whereas the outcome-oriented foundations tend to expect results a little more urgently and also prefer to have them quantifiable as opposed to uh, field-oriented foundations, which are more comfortable with both qualitative and quantitative data. And those two characterizations or those two kind of modes of engagement, certainly not absolute. There's foundations that fall in between or maybe they have some of one, some of the other. But I found that in my study, um, Gates and Broad really were more characteristic of an outcome oriented perspective. Kellogg and Ford more characteristic of a field oriented uh, perspective. And then that, of course, does break down along age as well. So the older foundations were more field oriented the newer sort of tech uh, entrepreneurial foundations, uh, more outcome-oriented. The other dimension, in addition to this this distinction you just draw, is is something about how close or distant the foundation wants to be to the policy process, mm-hmm. how, how close they want to get to that li- that line of, of lobbying, mm-hmm. if, if, if you would say. Um, talk a little bit about that. Which of these foundations is the um, assertive, um, uh, aggressive policy patron, and w- which take on the much more, the more sort of uh, a subtle, uh, distant approach. Yeah. So what was really fascinating to me is that all four of these foundations were open about being an influence on policy and that they wanted to influence policy, but they did it in really different ways. So Gates was, I think, one of the more interesting. I expected them to be very assertive and aggressive. But they weren't really. It took them a long time till about 2008 when they were founded in 2000. Um, so about eight years before they really looked at policy advocacy as a real lever that they could use in their grant making. Um, they have a very conservative approach, lots of lawyers involved, lots of people making sure that everything they do is by the letter of the law. Um, the quote from several informants that I heard was that Bill Gates had told them that they should go right up to the line, you know, not cross the legal line in terms of what is lobbying versus not, um, but that he wanted them to go right up to it. Broad was the one that was extremely assertive. Um, they have done advocacy work since the day they were founded. Um, Eli Broad really being the impetus behind that encourages them to use every resource at their uh, disposal to achieve the policy outcomes they're looking for. 
And then they even have a sister 501c4, which is uh, also a tax-exempt organization, but that has no restrictions on lobbying behavior. And what was interesting to me is that some of their policy staff at the foundation are actually paid part of their salaries from the C4. So that structure exists in a lot of different places, but rarely at a foundation and rarely in the open. So I thought that was kind of indicative of Broad's stance that, you know, we're just going to do whatever it takes to do what we need to do. Kellogg was the most reticent to be out there as a um, as a policy patron. Um, as you said, um, they tend to be more under the radar, a lot less comfortable with really being seen as uh, an actor in their own right, as opposed to their grantees being active in policy. But they've been going through a lot of strategic discussions with their board about whether or not they should really use the power of their brand to have more of a voice in policy discussions. And then Ford, although it shared a lot of things in common with Kellogg in terms of being field-oriented, it was actually more like Broad in terms of being very unapologetic about influencing policy. They've done it for years and years, um, you know, for five or six decades. They've been one of the most kind of out there social justice funders and very, very assertive in that way. So a real variety of um views in terms of interpreting the legal restrictions and what was okay versus what was not okay, not just legally, but also in terms of normative um, ideas about the proper political role of foundations in a democracy, and then also just, you know, concerns about political or um, reputational repercussions in terms of what they could do. Now, to that very point, toward the end of the book, you address the question of, well, when is a foundation too big and when is their power too strong? Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that line to you? And, and has Gates crossed that line? Great question. I personally, I would say yes. I think that Gates is probably too big. I, you know, the people in the book that I talked to, you know, they all sort of invoked this classic description of a foundation as beneficial because it can foster pluralism. You know, it can be a source of funds and capital outside the state to promote a wide variety of views in a democracy and promote that sort of deliberative dialogue. And then they would say, but it's bad when there's a single foundation that's really concentrating or targeting and, you know, sort of preferencing some views or approaches above others. And then they would all refer to Gates. So, you know, it became more of an issue after the Buffett gift. You start seeing a lot more critiques in the media. Um, whereas prior to about 2006, uh, one study showed that about 98% of media on foundations was, e- was either neutral or positive. Um, when Buffett made his gift, there was almost no critique at all. And then since then, it's really amplified. So in terms of the line, I guess, you know, somewhere between 60 and <laughs> $30 billion. Um, but I think it's not so much about the numerical figure as it is the visibility and the vocal nature of foundations being really involved in policy contexts um, as private institutions without real meaningful accountability mechanisms to voters. Yeah, the, this very interesting uh, book is titled, again, Policy Patrons, Philanthropy, Education Reform, and the Politics of Influence. The book is uh, published this year by Harvard Education Press and available widely. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.